If you're new, welcome to Citadel Square. You picked a great Sunday to join us. We are going to begin a brand new series this fall that will take us all the way until Christmas, and we're going to be in the book of Revelation. So if you've got a Bible, you're using your phone, your iPad, whatever it is you use, uh, go ahead and find the very last book of your Bible, the book of Revelation. It's just one revelation. It's not revelations. So if you've heard it said revelations, you now have the authority to rebuke whoever said that because that's annoying. Um, Let me say a couple things kind of to preface uh, this series. Let me kind of hear who I'm talking to. How many of you have never heard a sermon on the book of Revelation? Okay, some some in the back, up top. I I can kind of see some on top. Okay. Um, That's good to know as we begin. This book uh, has a tendency to cause conflict, uh, to cause uh, conflict over interpretation, to cause confusion, frankly, because you may get to this book and uh, read it and go, I have no idea what is happening in this book at all. Uh, It has a way of causing conceit because a lot of people are super, super confident about what they think about the end times, and they have got it all figured out. Uh, And every week I sit down with some of our interns and some of the younger guys on staff who are younger than me, and I say, tell me what this text is about. Uh, Tell me what you see in it. Tell me what you think is important to talk about. And uh, Addison, our middle school and high school director, said, uh, people who typically quote Revelation to you are people that you kind of roll your eyes at. And I said, that is is insightful. That is wise. Uh, If you think about the last person you saw with, uh, you know, the end is near, on a sandwich board or someone who had the confidence to quote something to you from Revelation, you got a little nervous. Uh, So be encouraged. Uh, I won't do that to you here this morning. What we're going to do throughout the next nine weeks is we're going to look at the seven churches of Revelation. Revelation is uh, a book about the end, quite simply. The Old and New Testament both reference the end, but there's no other book in your Bible quite like Revelation that has a way of unveiling uh, all of what is, what is going to happen in the end. If you have a in the beginning in your Bible, you'd better have forever and ever, amen. Uh, because that's what the scriptures tell us. They are all about who God is and what he is doing, what he has done in the person of, and work of Jesus Christ and what he will do in the future. So uh, we live in a time uh, with lots of, uh, really for lack of a better term, maybe drama, conflict, concern, anxiety. It's an election year. Everybody's nervous because it's an election year. Uh, All of the things that uh, people are thinking about and talking about and tweeting about and posting about and writing about uh, causes kind of every four years uh, everybody to get a little bit white-knuckled. Have you felt that in the the culture and in the society? Um, And what that does for a church is it has a temptation for all of us as we live in a world that uh, has a variety of opinions and a variety of perspectives. It causes us, I think, to get a little nervous, and we can have a temptation really to not focus on the things above. Colossians 3 says, set your mind on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God the Father. Uh, So this book, I hope, is going to be a recentering for you. Uh, all of what is in this book looks to the, um, the final consummation of the conflict between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world. And it's a conflict. 
Uh, that's where this book is headed. But before you get into that, in Revelation chapter 4 and beyond, we wanted to spend some time together as a church looking at the letters to the churches. Before you get into uh, the spiritual warfare, the religious system, the world political system, the political powers of the day, uh, John writes these letters to the churches. Uh, and it shows you some things about the church that I think are very important for us to hear and to know. Uh, people have opinions on the church that are all over the place. People tweet about the church, write about the church, have concerns about the church and how the church ought to change and ought to be different. And um, people have opinions when they come into this church and to a lots of churches about the kind of church we ought to be or they think uh, more reflects the things that they want in the church. But the book of Revelation has a way of taking you as a Christian and taking us as a church and putting us face-to-face -face with the most important thing. And that is what Jesus thinks of this church and what Jesus thinks of every church. Jesus knows what is healthy for a church. Jesus knows what makes a church sick. Jesus knows when a church is struggling. Jesus knows when a church has opportunity. Jesus knows when a church is strong. Jesus knows when the church is weak. And as we get into the next two weeks specifically, and we look at who Jesus is, he stands in the midst of the seven lampstands that are representing the churches. What you see as he writes, uh, as John writes to the churches, is Jesus holding the church accountable. Paul says, what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? God will judge those outside. Judge those who are inside. And the book of Revelation, and specifically these seven letters, have a way of calling the church to account. That's my greatest concern for us as a church, is that we would be a church. As the seasons come and the seasons go, that would be pleasing to Jesus Christ. That's the great ambition of a church, that we would be the kind of church that submit to his rule, his authority, and all that he wants for us to do, that we would be a church that is pleasing to him. That's my hope for every single church in this city, that they would be churches that honor and love and serve the purposes of Jesus Christ. So as we begin this series, can I encourage you and ask you, maybe implore you, to pray for the health and the obedience of Citadel Square. That we would have courage when the Spirit of God and the Word of God begins to convict us of sin. Where the Spirit of God and the Word of God begins to reveal some things maybe about yourself personally or about myself personally, about the culture of our church maybe that needs to change. That we would have the courage to repent where we need to repent, reorder what we need to reorder, and walk in such a way that we honor Jesus Christ. You with me? That's the great hope as we get on the other side of this church. John writes to seven prototypical churches that will have struggles at different seasons and in different times. But before he does that, he begins really the all of chapter one. And I'm just going to look at the first eight verses here this morning. If you're a note taker, I'm going to give you two major ideas in the first eight verses. You're going to see the promise and you're going to see the praise as John begins to lay out this book in front of you. The promise is going to be about the first three verses, and you're going to see the praise of John, who is the witness, all right? So let's pray. Let's ask God for his grace. Let's ask um, him to make us obedient, make us uh, those that would hear what the Spirit of God has to say to the churches, okay? Father in heaven, thanks for your word. Thanks that we can come here and gather together and we can seek the face of God through song, through the public reading of your word. I pray, Father, that we would be a church that honors you, that loves you, that serves you, and knows the approval of the Son of God. 
Father, for all that we're going to look at over these next nine weeks, I pray that you would make us humble and submissive hearers of your word, that you would shape us and that you would change us, that you would challenge us where we need to be challenged, that you would give us courage where we need to be courage, that you would give us contrition where we need to repent and turn from ways perhaps that are not honoring to you. Father, our greatest hope is that we would see Jesus Christ, that we would in this city see his name lifted up, his word proclaimed, and that we would provide hope to this city and hope in our relationships and families with those who could come to a right knowledge of the God of heaven and earth. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ and for his sake. Shape us and change us by your word and your spirit. Amen. All right, Revelation chapter 1. Y'all there? Say amen if you're there. All right, Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. The revelation. All right, now stop right there. I got to talk about that. I had one of our staff guys made a joke this week. He goes, Steve, you don't even need to worry about the whole slide. You just get to one word and you start talking. It doesn't even matter if you click the slides forward or backward. uh, And he's right. Uh, The revelation. Singular. It's one revelation. The final book in your Bible is right here written by the Apostle John. John is in prison. He's exiled on an island called Patmos, and he's given this revelation. Revelation is the word, it's the root word that we get the word apocalypse from. Uh, An apocalyptic literature, or the apocalypse, thinks about, you think about apocalyptic movies that uh, really capture just the end of all things. But that's not exactly what the word means here in context. The word throughout the New Testament speaks of a mystery of something that is revealed. The word is made up of two words that are put together, apo, which means back, and calypto, which means covers. So it's the pulling back of the covers. It's the revelation that uh, Paul talked about in Galatians 1, that he didn't receive the gospel from man or through man, but through a revelation, an apocalypto of Jesus Christ. Paul didn't discern it. He didn't discover it. It was given to him. It was shown to him. And throughout the New Testament, there are mysteries that are not seen. The church in Ephesians is said to be a mystery that needs to be revealed. Nobody had the idea of Jew and Gentile getting together under the name and purposes of Jesus Christ in a new body different from the ethnic division that had happened in the past. It was a mystery that had to be revealed. It had to be demonstrated. It had to be shown. God had to say, this is what I'm doing in Jesus Christ. So this book begins not as something that is to be discerned or discovered, but as something that needs to be revealed. You and I are dependent creatures. We don't discover things about the end just by dreaming them up. The end resides in the mind and the heart and the will and the purposes of God. And it is given. Look at what it says. The revelation of who? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ will be mentioned three times in these eight verses. As such, he is both the source of the revelation and he is the object of the revelation. If you want one purpose, one main idea that you want to get out of the book of Revelation, it's not whether or not the demons that look like locusts or helicopters. See, four of you have heard that before, and that's why you've laughed. The point of the book of the Revelation is Jesus Christ, period. The revelation 
of Jesus Christ. You know, there's much about Jesus in his uh, first coming that is glorious and wonderful and humble and beautiful and tender and wise and kind. But there is much about Jesus Christ up to this point in your Bible. If you close your Bible at the book of Jude, you don't have the whole story. You have unfulfilled promises that Jesus has made. You have things that Jesus has said about who he is that you have not seen come to pass yet. So when John begins and said, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ, you are about to see a side of Jesus Christ that heretofore you have not seen before. It is contained in this book. That's why your New Testament hit hints at the end times. It shows you uh, images or shadows of what is to come. Revelation demonstrates and lays forward all of who Jesus is. Where he was humble in his first coming, he is glorious in the book of Revelation. He is powerful in the book of Revelation. There is no opposition to him whatsoever in the book of Revelation. The revelation of Jesus Christ. Now watch how the the transmission of this message comes. These three verses that set up the book of Revelation uh, are kind of the how you read this book and why you should read this book. It doesn't begin like a lot of other New Testament epistles does. A lot of, of like Paul's writings begin with Paul the author to the recipients, but that's not how John begins this. John begins just for a minute, just in three verses to tell you, this is what this book is. It's kind of like a big warning label across the book. This is how you're to understand and to see and to read this book. And this is why you're to read this book. He's gonna give you a promise here in a second. But before he jumps in and talks about this is who I am and this is who the letters are to and this is why it's important to read and get into the praise of all of who God is, he goes, let me tell you about this book. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him. Who's him? Jesus. God gave to Jesus this revelation to show to his servants. God, Jesus, servants. The things that must soon take place. You know, if you... Uh, biblically, if you think about kind of the biblical culture that's happening when you get to the book of Revelation, there are two very important things that are happening culturally that two different writers speak about. Second Peter and Jude both speak about individuals in the culture and in even the Jewish time and in the, uh, essentially the culture of their day of people who are called scoffers. And if you read Jude and you read Second Peter, they both talk about scoffers who uh, who blow off the fact that God will judge. They blow off the fact that history has a terminus and is coming to a point that is under God's authority and under God's will and according to God's purposes. Peter says this. There are people who say, uh, scoffers who say, where's the promise of his coming? For all things happen uh, are, since the fathers were buried. Nothing has changed. The life continues to go on. You ever feel that in your life, that your life is kind of this succession of moments of the eternal present? Maybe not if you're older than, you know, 21, but if you are older than 21, you remember when you were 15, and you remember when you were 25, and you remember when you were 35, and on and on and on, right? But the things that capture my mind and my attention so often are the right now. You ever feel that? I didn't worry about what happened in Peru in the 70s this week at all. I didn't think about it. I didn't think about what happened in 2015 this week. Maybe you thought of uh, 9-11 this week. Maybe that brought a flicker of my, uh, to your mind. 
But we have a tendency to be consumed and anxious and worried and focused and intense about the right now and the thing right now and the thing that's so important right now, the thing I'm about to do next, and it's so important that I do this thing because I've got to the ne- get the next thing, and the thing I've got to get it away is this thing right here, right now. And John says, here comes this revelation to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. There's an imminence about it. It's the next event on the prophetic clock. Between your Old Testament and New Testament are 400 years of silence. Jesus' parables at the end of the book of Matthew all have to do with the imminence of his return, about how you will act, how you will steward, how you will plan, how you will look, how you will think when Jesus has not come back yet. And John begins saying these things must soon take place. They are imminent. Look at the remainder of verse 1. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John. God, Jesus, angel, John. You with me? A succession of reliable witnesses. Sending his angel to his servant, John, verse 2, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Now, you wouldn't see this in the, in the English, but in that word, you see he made it known he made it known as a, as a word that's used only six times in your Bible. Four of them are used about uh, Jesus fulfilling uh, the prophecy of how he would die. The other two are used about Paul in a court of law, about evidence brought against him to indicate that the evidence of who he is is true or false. These next two verses are filled with this law courtroom kind of picture. So he made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony, all lawyer kind of terms. Now, what makes a good witness? A good witness is not creative. A good witness doesn't make sure the story sounds good. A good witness doesn't dream up his own version of events. A good witness declares exactly what he saw. That's who John says he is. God the Father, Jesus Christ, angel, John the witness. John, what's your job? Write down all that you see. Speak all that you hear. John, you've got to be accurate. As such, John functions as a sort of New Testament prophet in saying, thus says the Lord. This is what I saw. This is what I heard. He bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ. Those are kind of two comparable words that are used throughout the book of Revelation about the veracity of the truth of the word of God specifically connected to the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's why the person and work of Jesus Christ is so central to the book of Revelation and who he is. They're aligned. The word of God is not disconnected. The word of God is connected. In the beginning, John says in his other gospel, was the what? You're not sure, I'll tell you. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The revelation of who God is is captured in the person and work of Jesus Christ. The word of God, the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Here's your promise. This is why I put this heading here, verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it for the time is near. You see the immediacy in the first three verses? Must soon take place, for the time is near. Blessed is the one who reads. This letter is probably a circular letter, circular letter that goes to multiple churches at the time. And Paul, I'm sorry, not Paul, John writes this in such a way that he expects the church not just to read it privately, but to announce it corporately, that this is meant to be the church's letter. 
Blessed is the one who reads it aloud. What's your response and my response to hearing the read word of God aloud? Blessed is the one who hear and who keep. All through John's counsel to the churches, let him who has ears hear what the Spirit says to the churches. It's the refrain in every single church. Pay attention. Pay attention. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Blessed is the one who hears. And what? When's the last time you took a verse from the book of Revelation? You said, I'm going to meditate on this so this would change my life. Doesn't Revelation have a way of being a little bit distant from where we are right now that I can read the New Testament letters of Paul and feel like, gosh, I need to really repent in this area and get my sanctification in order and begin to change my life in some certain ways. I need to repent and use my life and my gifts and my talents and my words differently and God forgive me for the way I'm acting. John gives a blessing and a promise to people who would read and heed this book. People who would begin now to change their, how they're living now in light of what will happen. What happens a lot of times in the church is we look back to who Jesus was and what he did and change our lives accordingly to the truth about Jesus and who he was back here. John says, blessed is the one who reads it, hears it, and keeps it. Isn't that interesting? That a eye on the future allows you to live in the present more wisely. Is that important to know? So let me ask you, as we begin this study, are you living, this is my question, am I living with the end in mind? Because that's what the purpose of the book of Revelation is. It begins to align your values, your thoughts, your plans, your ambitions, your desires, all according to the end. Have you read the end of the book? Do you know where we're headed? John says, blessed is the one who reads it, who hears it, who heeds it, who keeps it. Four, the time is near. Twice already in three verses he said, it must soon take place and the time is near. Now let's be honest. This week, have you lived with the end in mind? I, gosh, I was studying this text and I was going, gosh, I need to live with the end in mind. I better hurry up and start living with the end in mind because I've got to talk about it on Sunday. must soon take place. The time is near. So there's your promise. Read it, listen to it, heed it, obey it, live in light of time that is coming to an end. Now let's look at the praise. You with me so far? You got the promise. There's your promise in the book of Revelation. Read it, listen to it, heed it, pay attention, obey it, order your life differently. Now let's open the book or open the scroll as it were. Look at verse four. John to the seven churches that are in Asia. I'll show you this in a couple weeks when we get to these. These are churches that were, um, it's interesting that these are seven churches that John uses because they weren't all the churches in the region. Colossae as a church is in this region. But the seven churches uh, are not, are, I'm sorry, they're prototypical churches, but it, again, they're not exhaustive. There's probably a sense of plurality and wholeness is the way we understand these churches, but they're all in modern-day Turkey. If you were to deliver this letter from John to one of the churches, you would typically make kind of a circular route throughout Turkey. So John writes, and here's his letter to the seven churches that are in Asia. Now, watch how he begins his greeting. This greeting is all about God. He begins 
uh, in such a way, I think it's just a beautiful way he begins, because he saturates his greeting in the Trinitarian nature of God and who he is. So you read this book and you open up the first three verses and you say, blessed is the one who reads it. Blessed is the one who hears. Blessed is the one who keeps it and obeys it. And John takes one step into verse 4 and then he, what he tries to do is capture your mind and heart with the person of God. He tries to take your mind's eye and put it on the Trinitarian nature and beauty and glory of God and who he is. Look at what he says. Grace to you. Grace comes from the nature of God. It's God's unmerited favor, kindness, and goodness toward people who do not deserve it. As such, it has, it has nothing to do with mankind. It has everything to do with God. So John begins saying grace to you. What did you do to earn it? Nothing. I did nothing to earn it. I just received the grace and the kindness and the goodness of God poured out upon people who are sinners. Grace to you and peace. Peace indicates your relationship. Grace is the character of God. Peace is the relationship we have with God because of his grace. Isn't that a great way to open up a Bible on the apocalypse? Grace and peace. Now, if you've read this book, you know what is to come. But John makes sure he begins grace and peace to these churches. Grace and peace from him. If you want a fun little exercise, go back to these verses, 4 through 8, and circle how many times he or him is mentioned. M many, I mucho times, he or him is mentioned. Look what it says. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. I love that God refers to himself that way. And I'm going to tell you why toward the end. This, the, verse 4 or verse 8 are bracketed by this truth that God is the one who was, who is, and who is to come. It's as if all of the truth in between these two things is captured in the eternity of God, in God who was, and God who is, and who God uh, who is to come. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Now, what in the world is that? Uh, Options could be the spirit of each of the seven churches that will be mentioned. Um, it could be uh, seven independent angels that are representative angels that are around the throne. Uh, I lean toward this being uh, the Holy Spirit uh, for a couple of different reasons. One, it's sandwiched between God the Father and God the Son. Typically, angels aren't mentioned between God the Father and God the Son. Uh, later on in this book, the Holy Spirit is captured in sort of multiple different ways. The seven spirits who are here, he's represented later as seven torches, and later on again, even seven eyes. So there's probably a sense here that this is the sevenfold spirit, or the total fullness. Seven in the biblical literature is a sense of fullness and completeness. So probably, don't hold me to it, but probably the Holy Spirit. from God the Father, who is and was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who were before his throne. Verse 5, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. Witness is the word that we get the word martyr from. Uh, and throughout Jesus' time on earth, specifically in the book of John, there's, probably, there's three different times where Jesus refers to himself as the witness, as the one who gives witness, the one who speaks about the truth. I come as a witness to the truth, Jesus told Pilate. 
that consistently in Jesus' ministry, Jesus says, I speak what the Father has given me to speak. I speak according to what God wants me to say. I always do what is pleasing to the Father. I always do the things that the Father wants me to do. So grace and peace from the one who was and who is and who is to come, from the seven spirits and from the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead. Now, if you, uh, you may, in your uh, reading, as you've read the scriptures, be reminded of a spot in the book of Colossians. It said Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. Now, we get the word martyr, as I just said, from that word witness. What happens to a martyr? A martyr has a testimony with which they pay for with their life, right? So a martyr dies, typically. That's the way that we use the word. Well, Jesus brings together two very important ideas here. John, I'm sorry, brings together two very important ideas that Jesus is the faithful witness. He's the one whose word can be trusted, Is that good news? His word, when he speaks it, is authoritative and to be understood and to be uh, embraced as truth. What happened to Jesus? Well, Jesus died. Jesus was crucified for the truth that he spoke from God the Father. And here in the book of Revelation, though, he's the firstborn of the what? Say dead. You're with me. He's the firstborn of the dead. In Colossians 1, he's the firstborn of all creation. Here, he's the firstborn of the new creation. All as a result of his faithful witnessing to the truth. The firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings on earth. What does that tell you about Jesus' authority? Remember what Jesus told the disciples? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them all that I have commanded you, right? Behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age, right? There's your great commission. If you read the book of Philippians, Philippians chapter 2 talks about the emptying of Jesus Christ. Though he's in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, right? You've probably read that before. You can read it. By the time Paul gets to verse 9, it says that therefore Jesus uh, was given the name that is above every name, that the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that he is God, or he, Jesus is Lord, the glory of God the Father. Even in the passage about Jesus' humiliation is the book of Revelation. That they're paired together. Because Jesus was the faithful witness, uh, died, and is now the firstborn of the new creation, he now has all authority in heaven on earth being given to him. He is the ruler of the kings on earth. There is no area over this entire planet and this entire universe where Jesus does not have full and complete and ultimate authority and accountability. You with me? That's a pretty good start, right, John? Are you watching how John is making sure you know where this greeting is coming from? You could write books on the phrases that John writes here. And the ruler of the kings on earth. Now, what John does next, I think, is wonderful. Because so far, you've been blessed if you read it, if you heed it, if you listen to it, if you obey it. And then John says, here's this letter of grace and peace from the triune nature of God. And now what John does next, I think, is uh, so encouraging to us as a church. It's so encouraging to you. It's so encouraging to me. Because now what John is going to do is begin to praise this triune God. And he's going to praise God because of what he's done. Look at what he says, to him who loves us. Don't read, just don't read by that. 
John begins with an understanding of what Christ has accomplished for him, and John embraces the personal reality. John, throughout his letters, when he writes, especially in his gospel, he refers to himself as the one whom Jesus loves. John is blown away that the ruler of the kings on earth, that the one who was and who is and who is to come, and the seven spirits before his throne, he is blown away that Jesus loves me. Can you imagine, just imagine for a minute, you come in here from all sorts of places thinking about all sorts of things, and you sit down with the book of Revelation, and we begin this story. What if you began to know, down to the foundation of who you are, that you were loved by the God of the universe? the creator of heaven and earth, who knows you intimately. Every struggle, every gift, every story, every period of difficulty, every height, every valley. And you heard to the middle and the center of who you are that Jesus loves you. That's, how, that's what John says. John says the greatest hope for a church who hears grace and peace from the triune God is embracing the truth confidently that Jesus loves me. This is the root of all of what John is about to say, is that Jesus loves me. All of John's glorious doxology in speaking about Jesus and who he is begins with what he writes in 1 John. This is love, not that we have loved God, but that God loved us. And to him who loves us. And now watch out. John is going to root his understanding of Jesus in the future with Jesus in the past. Imagine being John, who walked with Jesus, who saw Jesus crucified, who saw him transfigured, and then John gets the picture of all of who Jesus is today, right now. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. What's John looking back to? He says, Jesus loves me because Jesus died for me, because Jesus has freed me from my sins. And not only that, Jesus didn't, listen, Jesus didn't just save you to kind of sit you on a shelf and go, just wait to die. You know that? You get in these, these, this next phrase, you get a new status and you get a new service. Freed us from our sins by his blood, verse 6, and made us a kingdom those are people who order their lives according to God's rule, God's authority, God's protection, God's provision, that they are under the rule and the authority of God. He has made us a kingdom. It's people who are a part of the kingdom of God. It's not just a location and an area. It's people who begin now to order their lives according to what they know of God. Not only that, he's made us priests to his God and Father, that we now become servants we now begin to order our lives in such a way that we are obedient to what God says in any situation, in every season, in all of what God wants for us, in our marriages, in our parenting, in our workplace, and all of those things, we become priests of God. This is kind of this echo of what uh, Peter writes, that you are a kingdom of priests, a royal priesthood, he says, that we have this royal sense of new status and a, a royal commission as servants of God and priests of God. To him, how many times has he said him or his? I don't even know. I stopped on counting. 
To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. See all of what John has just done? John took his personal apprehension of what Jesus has done for him, and it has created worship in his heart. Your worship <clears throat> uh, is always, 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 always tied to your understanding of God. Always. If you are ignorant of God, you are ignorant in worship. Your worship will be weak and anemic and painful and self-centered and bitter and angry and resentful unless you are uh, aware of who God is and what he has done. That's one of the great purposes of reading your Bible. That's one of the purposes of you reading this book, obeying it, heeding it, and ordering your life according to what it says. Because it's only John who understands that Jesus loves me and to him be glory and dominion. And what did he say? To him be glory and dominion forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Amen. Why can he say that? Because he knows Jesus loves him. He understands. He apprehends the truth of God and who Jesus is for himself personally. Unless you have theology, you will never have worship. You with me? Never. So you got a status, you got a service. Now watch, that's all in the past. Watch how the book uh, turn, or the, the phrases turn here from the past to the present to the future. Look at verse seven. Behold, he is coming. Literally, that, that I-N-G is there purposefully, purposefully in the English. It's as if it says Jesus is currently on his way. The very next thing to happen in the prophetic time clock is not what Jesus did back there, but Jesus is on his way. He's getting ready to come. He is coming. What will happen at his coming? That's when you move into the future. Behold, he's coming with the clouds. Clouds are often connected in the Old Testament to the, um, uh, you know what the word, uh, it's like a, the attendance of God, the retinue of God, the posse of God. You know, you get the idea. Uh, they accompany God. He's coming with the clouds. The angels talked to the disciples and said, men of Israel, why are you staring up into the heaven? This Jesus who you saw go up into heaven this way will return the same way. Stop looking. He's coming. He's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. How did Jesus come the first time? In a little bitty place out of the way that people looked at as a, a bad side of town, as a place that was not impressive. Rather, uh, one of the disciples said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Is this the place really that Jesus is going to be born? Are you serious? He grew up, Isaiah said, there was no beauty or majesty that would attract us to him. He wasn't good looking, didn't have 5% body fat. He came in an out-of-the-way place, in a humble manger, not popular, not in a palace. He was crucified as one of many criminals in his day. But there's coming a time when all will see him. The first time, he came in humility. This time, he'll come in exaltation. The first time, in an unknown place, out of the way, backwater town. This time, in the sky, where every eye will see him. You will not be confused at the second coming of Jesus. Every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth, will wail on account of him. Now, I think this is intentional here. You may have a cross-reference there that talks about Zechariah 12, which you may or may not have read. Zechariah 12 talks about the redemption of the people of Israel, that God pours out his, his spirit upon the people of Israel, and they turn, 
and mourn for the one whom they have pierced. They will look to the Jew that they crucified. Uh, that may be the case here. I'm inclined to say probably not, just because of the way that everybody will respond to Jesus upon his return. It seems to be a negative. That word mourn is the word cut. It says everybody will be cut to the heart, that they will be revealed and see who Jesus is, and they will not respond positively. So it could be put together. Jew and Gentile will look to the one whom they have rejected through the course of their lives, and then when Jesus has come and he reveals himself, everyone will mourn. Everyone will be filled with regret that they did not receive him the first time. And John ends saying this, even so, amen. There's two words here that he, that he says. It's a, a strong affirmation in the Greek and the strong affirmation in the Hebrew. Even so, says, let it be. And amen is similar in the Hebrew. So it's as if John says, amen and amen, let Jesus do all that he is going to do. Now, the close of this text is verse 8. And this is how I want to kind of close our time together. The close of this text is one of two places in all of the book of Revelation where God the Father speaks. He speaks here and he speaks in Revelation chapter 21. And they're virtually identical phrases that he uses in Revelation 21 and here. Here's what it says. Revelation 1, verse 8, I am the Alpha and the Omega. You may have heard that term before. That may be a phrase that you have heard before. Alpha and Omega are the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. And when uh, God the Father says this, he doesn't just say, like, I'm A and I'm Z. He's saying, I'm the beginning, I'm the end, and I'm every letter in between. I'm every beginning and I'm every ending. Every beginning has as its source and ultimate point of reference, me. Every single ending has as its source and ultimate point, me. Now, for an eternal being to say that, what is he saying? He's saying that from the beginning, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The beginning is about God. And I'm the omega, which is what he will say in Revelation 21. He'll say, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Behold, I'm making all things what? New. The beginning of creation rests in my purposes, my design, my beginning, and the end of creation rests in my purposes, my design, and my plans. Everything in between has to do with me. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God. Here is what he says again, who is and who was and who is to come. God's relationship with a finite creation, our creation has a defined beginning and a defined end, all that are in the mind, purposes, will, and power of God. Over that sits a God who is, who was, and who is to come. You with me? But even more than that, are you watching why this text is so important for your praise of God and who he is? You see why John is doing this? Beginning and end, eternity, almighty. Even higher than that. Almighty doesn't have to do with just like. That's not the point. The point of the Almighty is he has all sovereignty everywhere, all the time. There was never a point in eternity past where God was not sovereign. There was never a point in eternity future when God is not sovereign. There was never a point in the alpha and the beginning of all things where God is not sovereign. There is never a point in the end of all things where God is not sovereign, and he is called the Almighty. This is John's favorite term to refer to God in the book of Revelation. 
He is ultimately, eternally, immutably sovereign. Now, why does John begin like that? Why does John say grace and peace from him who was and who is and who is to come and end with I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. You know why he thinks he starts this book? You know why I think, I think he starts this book just to remind you and to remind me that the Bible is not a book about you. Isn't that discouraging? Don't you really want it to be about you? Don't I, re- I mean, don't I really want this verse to be about me? I, the Lord, have spoken, and I will do it. I didn't even plan that. I didn't even plan that. That the book is not about me. The book is about God. We don't come to this book to have God. Well, let me make sure I say this right. You don't get, like, super discouraged. We come to this book to hear from God. We come to this book to see God. We preach the word of God to hear and to know God. The, book, the Bible that you hold in your hands is a story of God. So that the last book in your Bible is this place where the one who says, I hold, listen, for God to say, I'm the beginning and the end, who is, who was, who is to come, the Almighty, he says that I hold all the keys, I have all the cards, I have all the power, I have all the authority. I know the entire story from the beginning to the end, and I will accomplish every single one of my purposes exactly the way I want them to in the exact amount of time that I want them to, and it will all be for my name's sake and for my glory. That's what God just said. I am turning 43 this year, uh, and I now, I stand in an interesting place in this pulpit because we have people who come to this church. I found out we have, one of our residents was born in, uh, Jonathan, where are you? What year were you born? 97. 97. And then we have people in this church. Don, how, when, what year were you born? 1935. I stand in an interesting spot in this pulpit because I have people who are 20 years ahead of me and 20 years behind me. And I have found that in my life, the longer I live, I am beginning to see, you know, we have a bunch of kids, and every time I talk to people who have kids out of the house, they go, hang on to these days, they go so quick. And I go, God, they're so long, though. (laughs) They take so long. And just in these past couple of years, I've started to see the thing in my own personal life, in my own personal way, where I'm beginning to see the end of seasons. I'm beginning to recognize that I used to, uh, I would sing to my son before bed when he was in his crib, and I would sing, you know, what songs do you want to sing? He wants to sing, Behold Our God and Holy. I said, okay, Behold Our God and Holy. Behold Our God, and I'd sing it every single night, every single night. I'd know those songs inside out and backwards and all of that, and I, and I recognized one time that now he's now, he just turned six, I don't have those days anymore. That that was a time, and that time is over. And there was a season where we changed diapers, and now we don't change diapers. We have one that's in diapers still. But there's coming a time where I won't change any more diapers. And this is like, this is just me and this is my life. And I'm beginning to recognize the older I get, I have fewer and fewer starts. I have fewer and fewer alphas and more and more omegas. 
You with me? And for God to say, I'm the beginning and I'm the end, allows me to begin to live my life in such a way that my life is not about my life. That my life and your life is now, listen, when I was born in 1977, 20 years, John, 20 years before you, God had a plan. And he was working his plan. And it's not like 1977 happened and God said, gosh, I better get to work. As if the end of the ages rests on me and what I'm doing. And what I have found, the longer I'm in ministry, the longer I'm a husband, the longer I'm a dad, is that the greatest hope that I have is not to accomplish some set of personal ambitions and dreams and desires, but the thing that captures my heart as I get older and older is just being obedient, is just doing what God wants me to do, to contribute to what God is doing as long as I am here. It said of David in the book of Acts, he fulfilled the purposes of the Lord in his generation and he fell asleep. How you want that? Wouldn't that be great to have that on your tombstone? I did everything God wanted me to do with the time that I had. I was obedient to what God wanted me to do. To him be the glory and the dominion forever. Amen. That's what a Christian is. That's what it means to be a part of the kingdom of God. That's what it means to be a priest to our God and Father. It's to take your life and begin to unhinge your perspective from all these ambitions and dreams and desires and plans and things that are all about you and begin to live your life in such a way that you order your life according to the Alpha and the Omega, the one who is and who was and who is to come. You with me? That's why this book is so important. Because you, in light of eternity, you and I are here like that. And one day, this life, this journey will be over. And the question for you and the question for me is, are you living your now in light of the end? Look, if you walked in here today and you've never heard this before, that one day God will put an end to all sin, all suffering, all satanic and demonic rebellion, and he will condemn those who have not put their faith and trust in the one and only way, truth, and life, the Son of God, as the one who loves you and has paid the price for your sins and that you can be safe from the wrath to come, then I want you to know that today. That eternity is coming, death is coming, there is a time when you will reach your omega, your end. And the hope for you and the hope for me is that we have received the truth of God and his word that Jesus loves us, Jesus died for us, and Jesus will bring us safe to the end. That's why John starts with this. Get God right. Father in heaven, we pray as men and women who are here in light of eternity for just a breath that we would live our lives, that we would be men and women who know that the greatest joy of our life is to be obedient to the desires of God, that we would be men and women who honor you with our lives and in our hearts and our hopes and our dreams, and that you would look at us as men and women of God with pleasure as we seek to be priests to our God and Father, that we would order our lives, that we as a church would be the kind of church that orders our lives and our hopes and our ambitions according to what you have and you want for us.
We pray this in the mighty name of Jesus who loves us and who has freed us from our sins. Amen.